Welcome to episode 407 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with arts journalist, editor, Broadway lover, podcaster, among other things, Mark Blankenship. We discuss his journey from Tennessee to Georgia to Yale to New York City, his periodical The Flash Paper, his radio program Show Tune Countdown, his book Madonna A to Z, and how he vogued when he should have been in gym class. Small steps to big solutions, among other interesting avenues of discourse. A grand conversation with Mark Blankenship this week. We also feature the debut of an original play by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled The Shut-In Receives a Letter from His Mother. We have an EWSA titled Show Tunes and a poem called Shadows. And all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 407 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours. And then you take that love you made and stick it into some 
is music? What is a dramaturge? How can one determine the elegance of a poem or a mathematical proof? Before it is all gone, before it goes poof? Or perhaps those are forever floating, breathing in the ether, if not remembered exactly in human culture? So eternal are the themes and schemes of this species we call home. From the corpuscles to the fatty tissue to the core of each and every bone. These luscious, succulent lips that I lick and yours that I bite and kiss. We need to express more than just those tasks without which our existence would be lived shorter and shallower, arrogant, vapid, and remiss. I do enjoy a light yet poignant show tune every now and again. The sense of humanity it makes real and possible out of the pretend. A grand conversation without a distinct beginning or end. And to know that this walk has some genuine love. It is the winter wind at this moment that reminds me of our visceral life. As it blows the singing chimes to resonate tone and pitch as the flags of season and country whistle and wave vigorous. Steadfast and together, we are all so rich.
Hello. Hello, Mark Blankenship. Is that you? That is indeed me. You have found me. <laughs> it's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And uh, before we get started, I'd like to share a little background information with the listeners. Mark Blankenship is an arts journalist, editor, and podcaster. He is founder and editor of The Flash Paper. Mark currently hosts the Show Tune Countdown for our iHeartRadio Broadway, as well as the pop music podcast Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. Mark recently wrote the book Madonna A to Z, which is available at MarkAndSarahTalkAboutSongs.com, and he has contributed to the New York Times, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, Variety, Vulture, and many others. He was the founding editor of TDF Stages, and he has been a key collaborator on projects with the Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the Thornton Wilder Family, and the Emerson Colonial Theater. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Mark Blankenship. Again, thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show. Oh my gosh, what a pleasure. I appreciate the chance to be here. Well, you know, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about uh, regarding your your experience, uh, in particular what's what you've been seeing during the pandemic. Maybe we can even mm-hmm. get something positive out of it. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about uh, your background. You know how you how you got to where you are today. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, if we go all the way back. I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and was uh, quickly enamored of the youth community theater there, and that just set me on this path. And then when I was in college, I realized that, oh my gosh, maybe I didn't know everything that I thought I knew about the theater, that perhaps having appeared in Raggedy Ann and Andy in downtown Chattanooga wasn't the same as really, quote, getting it with regard to what the theater was. So that led me on this discovery of dramaturgy and dramatic criticism as these fields that really speak very deeply to what I care about, which is in some way trying to create either through language or through sweat spaces where people can feel heard and people can speak to one another, to one another clearly about art. And that led me to make a lot of professional choices that allowed me to continually make these spaces. And I I used to think about my review writing, even when I was reviewing plays, as creating conversations and hoping that other people would step into them. But then the more that I worked, the more I realized that I really felt the most gratified when I was able to make spaces that were more literal than that. So I started hosting pop culture tournaments, and I started hosting... uh, cheeky conversations about the all-time best opening number in a musical, that sort of thing, and really getting interested in creating events where it the, the vibe is low-key and relaxed, but the intellectual rigor is serious. You know, I, I like to think of it as uh, rigorous thinking in a casual voice. And that led me in <clears throat> to that led me to meet lots of really smart, interesting people who like to do things that are fun but also require rigorous thinking. And all of that was going along great guns until obviously the pandemic happened and I found myself suddenly stymied. And then I remembered, oh wait, I do have this person that I know who is connected to this independent press. What if we tried to create a print 
magazine where theater artists who don't have work right now can still talk about the world, can still express themselves. And then we can put that into the world as this physical object that is actually tangible and is more permanent than something that we might stream online, is more permanent than a show that we may see in a theater. It's just like this thing that's always there, this talisman of what theater people are thinking. So that became the impulse to the flash paper. That's a lot of information packed into a short little monologue. I hope, oh. I hope that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know we were in Tennessee, and now I think we are, are we in New York City now? Yes, uh, yes. I have not lived in Tennessee uh, since I was 18, but my family is still there. So, you know, I guess part of me always will. So when but yes, now I live in Manhattan. <laughs> you live in Manhattan now, and 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 all of these conversations and the uh, you know the the creating spaces and rigorous thinking that started for you uh, in college, I suppose, and then you just kept building on it and building on it as a professional, and now to the most recent endeavor in that in that direction, the Flash Paper. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, even in college, I was the resident advisor of the International House. <laughs> my gosh. It was called the Spice House Students Programming for International Cultural Exchange. I and, love a good um, acronym. I That's just, excellent. Oh my God. You know, I live for an acronym. <laughs> um, they, acronyms are A-OK. -okay. <laughs> um, but the, the Spice House was this environment where I was, we lived in a four-story house on frat row, but we weren't for fraternity people, we were weird artists. And I remember that the fraternity brothers all thought that we had orgies there all the time. And we were like, <laughs> no. Mostly we just have dance parties, but I learned in that space the power of using a space that I inhabit to create events that welcome people in. So we were constantly having like Club Spice was the disco night, and then we would have Spice movie nights, and like I, people were coming in and giving cultural lectures. And that, so yes, it was in college that I became uh, permanently enamored of the possibility of just making space and in uh, in all of the ways that that can manifest itself online, in books, in real life, what have you. Uh, maybe it would make more clear to me to know what college we're talking about. Yes, of course, we're talking about Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Great. So so from, from Tennessee to, uh, to Georgia. And then how, how from there to New York? You figured the place I need to be, being involved, being interested in theater is New York? Well, I got, yes, I, when I was at Emory, I was lucky enough to be a theater major in a program that had two full-time dramaturgs on the faculty because there's an equity theater that's connected to Emory uh, with a professional theater. So there were all these people around doing these shows, and then they were help letting us undergrads be taken seriously enough to participate. And one of my professors there uh, was a really inspiring guy who had been to Yale Drama. And I thought, oh, I should go to the Yale Drama Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism program. So I fortunately got into that program and I went to Yale drama and that got me above the Mason Dixon line, uh, which was shocking to many members of my family. <laughs> in fact, I, I actually don't think my grandmother ever quite got over it, but you know, rest in peace. Uh, and then at, from drama school, when I was in drama school, I started freelancing for variety. And so by the time that I graduated, I had that gig lined up where I was covering off Broadway shows for them. And so I moved to New York, thinking, okay, I'm going to give myself six months in New York to not take any other job. I'm just going to see if I can only write about the theater to make my living. And it worked out. So that was in 2005. And ever since then, I have been fortunate enough to just only ever work in the arts and only ever do things that I find intellectually stimulating. 
it's like a miracle in a way, but it, it, yes. it, it, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm incredibly grateful that it worked out that way. Oh gosh. Yeah. That, you're, you're fortunate. You're blessed in many ways, right? Yes. Um, so we you know we have, uh, another regular guest who has a connection to Yale drama school, Martin Amayok. I don't know if you guys ever worked together across. Oh paths. yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, I know her plays, but she, she did not overlap with me at school, but yes, I know that she is a wonderful playwright. Oh yeah. Yeah. I figured eventually you guys will connect, I bet. Um, but this is, this is a great story. I, I'm loving it. And that now the flash paper, you had a, um, a couple of issues, uh, and, you know, what, what did they look like? What do they feel yeah. like? Like what actually is the flash paper? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it would help if I explain that. So the flash paper is a print only journal in which theater artists are invited to respond to urgent current events in any genre that they choose. And that phrase print only is very important because the flash paper does not exist online. It is a book that you, that you get and you hold it in your hands. And when I say that artists are responding to urgent current events, I mean that in each issue of the flash paper, the contributors are given a prompt. In issue one, it was, what will it be like when social distancing ends? In issue two, which just came out in December, the, the prompt is, when you imagine a moment of justice in our country's future, what do you see? Mm -hmm. So the contributors chew on that, and then they use any genre that they want that can be printed to respond. So in issue two, there's a wonderful playwright named Kate Tarker who made a coloring book in response to imagining a moment of justice. And the way that you color in each page actually speaks to what you think justice is. It's mm, awesome. Yes. But then there are. There are plays, there are monologues, there are photo essays, there's a graphic novel called Andrew Cuomo's Nipple Rings in issue one. <laughs> there's just, and it's just, it's, it's a real thrill, I think, to get these books in the mail. And oh my gosh, like this printed material that I'm holding in the flash paper, it's all of these artists and these, uh, it, it, it's, I've, I have found it very inspiring because it's so easy right now to um, think that the, it's just easy to imagine an apocalyptic future where theater artists have no more outlets. <laughs> I hope not. But I know. I, I hope. I, I actually don't think it's going to happen at all. And working on the flash paper has confirmed that hope for me because the energy, the artistic and intellectual energy that's leaping up out of these pages is very inspiring to me. And um, I guess another thing to say about the flash paper that's important is that it's also a fundraiser for these artists because we're very upfront about the fact that everybody gets paid a dollar per issue sold, including me and my designer. So like, it's very, like we have a very socialist pace model mm -hmm. for this, for this book. But I just also feel like that's really important too, because I, um, as I've taken to saying recently, I have had my lifetime fill of doing good work for no money. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And you have to sustain the, the periodical as well as yourself. Yes. You know, I mean, those are realities. And, um, yes, and I'm just really glad that we've been able to jerry-rig a payment system where everyone is paid equitably, and like we put it on the website. Like we specifically say where the money goes, and I never knew that I was going to be a sort of baby socialist about this, but I totally am. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not a bad thing. I, I, I like your model. That's great. I wish you the best with it too. Um, how, how many? Fo how many? Uh, I guess, what's the circulation, I guess, is what I'm looking to find out right now. Is yeah, it... so we've been very fortunate to uh, – we've only had two issues. The first one came out in June, the second one in December. Issue three will be in June again. Um, we're hovering in the, let's say, the low four digits. You know, we've got over 1,000 people who are buying, who have bought 
the That's issue. That's great. And like, you know, just that there's this little, there's this real community of people who want to read the graphic novel called Andrew Cuomo's Nipple Rings. Like, yes. <laughs> right. Thank you. I'm glad. No, that's fantastic. And, you know, when I guess we go to the next uh, question I have here for you, it's kind of connected uh, to, to what you just explained, um, learning through the pandemic, you know, uh, what, what, what are you, uh, regarding theater, regarding, I guess, artistic folk, what do you learn? What are you learning? Yeah, that's a great question. What have I learned about artistic folk? Well, one of them is that if given the chance, I have noticed that people in my section of the theater community are eager to think deeply about the systems that they were working in before and the systems that they want to be working in next. And everyone is having an intense, sometimes awful emotional experience with the last year, everyone in the entire world. But I have, I really do believe that theater artists, at least a lot of the ones I've interacted with, are are experiencing those things, but they're also seeing the chance to really step off of the hamster wheel of just trying to make theater happen and think about how we can rebuild something else when we return. The, the intensity of the conversations around injustice in the theater have been very, very important, but they've also, I think, now led to this energy to make something better and based on the fact that we're an entire industry full of people who create something out of nothing, I really believe that there's going to be a concerted effort to make the theater when it comes back something that feels more humane. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to result in, in even better work. Now, I know that that might sound a little bit Pollyanna, but again, I've been working with all of these artists for a year in these really intense ways about uh, talking about these really intense things. And I just I'm, I'm saying it because I've seen what they've done. No, I, I get it. I get it. I, you know, I remember talking to somebody um, a few months back, uh, Barbara Walsh. I don't know if you know Barbara. Uh, she's a Broadway actress, and and she, you know, Wait, are you talking Barbara Walsh from Falsettos? Yes, yes. Oh, do I know the cast of Falsettos? <laughs> yes, I, I, I figured. That's four tattooed in my soul. I figured. I, I mean, given the fact that you're the host of Showtune Countdown, I figured <laughs> you might know. But she she said outright, and, and she made it clear she wasn't kidding. She said the only thing that'll save uh, humanity is the arts. Basically, art is mm-hmm. the only thing that'll save us. So when you say you're being Pollyanna or maybe, you, you know, you, uh, a little grandiose with regard to uh, the, the arts and, and the effect that it should or could have on, on humanity. And no, I, I agree with you. I think that is exactly what we should be thinking. And, you know, I want to just say, hearing you say that about the arts will save humanity, I, it resonates with me as something that's very true. And what I would add to that is that being an audience member is part of helping the arts save humanity. And I have seen the way that people have responded to what's in the flash paper and the way that people have responded to online performances that matters. It actually enhances and advances the conversation. So I think it's very tempting sometimes for us in the arts community to say, Oh, we, the artists are going to do it. We're going to save the world. But we, it's important to remember that the art we're making is being made in concert with our audiences. And so if you are an audience member to a work of art and you're just, even if you're just watching it and thinking about it, 
and and thinking through your your responses, you're actually contributing to this attempt to make the world a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more humane. So. Barbara Walsh was absolutely correct, as all members of the cast of Falsettos always will be about everything. <laughs> and I would just say that if you're hearing this and if, if you hear a conversation like that and you think, but I'm not an artist, I would just say, but yes, you are part of this. It's just as important to engage from that place as it is to engage from the place of art making. Well said. Well said. We're, we're talking with arts journalist, editor and podcaster Mark Blankenship here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And you know, um, when when uh, I looked at your bio, one of the things that really made me, uh, I guess, excited was the fact that you host the show I just mentioned, Show Tune Countdown. Uh, t- tell us about how much fun that is. Oh, my God. Okay. So, yes, the premise of the Show Tune Countdown is that um, every week we count down the most important songs uh, show tunes in a crucial category. And I'm using these hyperbolic words without any sense of irony, I assure you. They are the most important, and the categories are crucial. I would never joke about that. <laughs> but so you count down like the 10 all time best opening numbers, or the 10 best songs by a villain, or the 10 best I want songs. And what you end up doing when you invite people on social media to contribute their votes and, you know, you, you make the you, I, it's me. But when I make those lists of uh, the top vote getters and then talk about the songs, what happens is that not only do you get to experience the joy of hearing, you know, like bosom buddies from MAME, which is always its own reward, but you get to really think about why these songs have made it onto this list and you think about how these songs function in the shows that they're in. So you basically get to sneak dramaturgy in through the back door of just being a big fan of show tunes. And to me, that's just that sweet, that's that sweet spot. That's that dessert with whipped cream on top to use a bad metaphor. But so that's why it's such a joy for me. It's because you get to, thinking is fun is basically what I'm saying. And this show is fun. (laughs) And and people can hear it still, right? On iHeartRadio? Yes, if you, if you if you just the, the probably the fastest way to find it is to just Google the phrase show tune countdown because I think we're the only thing that comes up. But um, also if you go to markgblankenship.com, that's my personal website. There's a link to it there. Um, if you go to the Our Heart Radio podcast uh, uh, platform and you type in show tune countdown, it comes up. It's it's easy to find. And um, what about uh, your book Madonna A to Z? What prompted you to oh. write that? Um, what prompted me to write Madonna A to Z? I would say. My genetic code. <laughs> oh, uh, so, for, so my my colleague Sarah D. Bunting and I have now for five years been hosting a show called Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, where we do exactly what it sounds like. And for both of us, talking about Madonna is just oh, it's just the best. And we've been talking about Madonna for so long, and I myself have been talking about Madonna. Like I I stayed in from recess in sixth grade so that I could practice my voguing moves. Okay. <laughs> like my teacher, my teacher saw me and she said, you young homosexual, that is fine. Stay in. So I would, st- I would unfold the, the, uh, the, the cassette tape inset, uh, the cassette tape booklet for the immaculate collection. I would unfold it so I could see all of the pictures of Madonna in her Harlequin costume. And I would vogue while looking at it. So this, <laughs> Oh my God, I can't believe I'm being this explicit. But that's what it was like. So I have really always, she's been an artist that I've been interested in for a long time, to put it mildly. So 
Uh, Sarah and I, um, so the Flash Paper is published by uh, an organization called Yonkers International Press. And if you go to theflashpaper.com, you can learn all about that. So we reached out to the folks at Yonkers International Press and we said, we have this idea where we will do a 26 chapter book about Madonna. Each chapter will be, start with a consecutive letter of the alphabet and it will be 26 perspectives on her life, career and legacy. And we're gonna get super nerdy and super specific about it because we just wanna like scratch this itch and they said sure okay so then sarah and i did that <laughs> and and has uh, ms Ciccone heard about it uh, your endeavor <laughs> I, I i doubt it but my parents have encouraged me to message her on instagram <laughs> yes i think you should listen to your parents i do I... <laughs> mark have you have mark have you reached out to her on social media? I bet she would like it. I'm like, Mom, probably not, but okay. Oh, I think she'd be honored. But, you know, yeah, there's a lot to – I'm sure there's millions of things she's got to sift through. It would be, be a long shot that she'd even see it, right? But it sounds like a wonderful project. It surely does. Well, my, my guess is that if Madonna saw that book, she would say, why is there an entire chapter dedicated to the jacket I wear in Desperately Seeking Susan? <laughs> and we'd be like, because there has to be, okay? <laughs> Great movie. I love that. I love that movie. Oh, it's a classic. Uh, yes. It is. It is. So where where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? You know, we're, we're still in the thick of things with regard to the pandemic. There's no doubt about that. Um, we're in a very, I hope, a trans, transitional period uh, socially and politically, um, you know, post-45, uh, so to speak. There's so much going on that could be used as uh, uh, an impetus to create art. And uh, there's a need, I think, for us to have it as an audience, uh, as, as artists, both. So where do, where do you go and where do we go from here, do you think? Great question. It's something that I think we all have to think about, right? I mean, it's, it behooves us to think about that. What I will say for me personally is it, I feel like it's my solemn duty to just keep creating spaces for people. So I'm working with Yip, Yonkers International Press, to make the third issue of The Flash Paper, which is coming out soon. We're working on a few other book projects with some theater companies to give them the space to be heard. Over on my podcast, we're hosting weekly live happy hours where people can just come hang out. So for me, the answer is just keep doing everything I can to give people the room to be heard and to talk to each other. But I think that maybe for the larger question of where do we go from here? I mean, again, not like I really am a sage who has the answers to all of those questions, but I really believe that the, the thing that we have to do now is commit to re-engaging with one another and commit to the fact that connecting to one another in a way that isn't behind a screen only is important. And even though we're maybe we're not quite at the point where we can all be in each other's homes or in live event spaces, I think that it's going to be really important for us to make a plan to connect to other people in a way that feels immediate and um, meaty. And that I think it can be as simple as like, who's a friend that you haven't seen in a while? Give them a phone call. Walk, go on a walk with them. I I, I know that that again. I do believe in the sort of the value of small steps leading to big solutions. And I think if we just all decide that we can empower ourselves to take a moment with someone that we care about and just be connected with them in a way that feels specific and undistracted, 
that's going to be really important because it's it could be tempting to get into the habit the neurological habit of isolation because we've been pushed into that for so long so we have to start reflexing those muscles like immediately i i like that and and when you talk about isolation and you talk about reconnecting reengaging are we talking about within our own little bubble or are we talking about extending ourselves outside of that bubble i mean there are a lot of people in, in our own, um, I guess, so safe mm. places that we don't connect with enough. And maybe you're talking about reconnecting with those folks. We know, though, that they care about us. We know that we have a reasonable connection or commonality with one another. But what are you also talking about getting outside of that comfort zone and connecting with our fellow citizens, fellow humans that maybe were you know, very different in many ways? Mm. I think that that has to be the end goal for the next few years of this country or we're we're not going to make it really. And I think that we have to I, I think it's about figuring out our strategy. And, and I know that that might sound like a clinical word, but we actually I do think need to create a conscious strategy for how do we take these small steps away from isolation into something that feels more profoundly connected. And you just have to actually, it takes work. You actually have to decide that you're going to live this way. So maybe the first step is you do something small within the community of people that you already feel comfortable with, but you know that that is leading you to the next step. And you maybe even want to give yourself a timeline on which to do this, but to then step out and start to reach out to people that maybe you haven't connected to before. So my feeling is that, yes, we have to be able to communicate with people who are bigger than our own small circles. And it, however we get there is fine, but I do think we have to be conscientious about the fact that it is our job as human beings to do that. Well said. Well said. And, and I think, you know, the arts is a means to that end. There are a lot of folks that, uh, you know, I know myself that uh, I share a love of a particular piece of art. Though if mm -hmm. we talked politically, we would be divergent in our views. So maybe we can we could uh, find common commonality a common humanity through through the art so then we can work uh to, to better connect in those other areas you have just scratched one of my sort of lifelong philosophies about why talking about pop culture is so important may i share it with you please <laughs> please do i'm glad i did this it is really my true deep belief that when we talk to each other about the art that we love, even if like theater, movies, pop songs, it doesn't matter. But when you have a conversation with someone about art that you love and you realize that you can talk to them about that and, and you can find ways to agree and disagree with one another, you're actually training yourself to be vulnerable with another person. Because expressing your love of a song or a movie or a piece of theater, that requires a certain amount of vulnerability, but it doesn't require a ton. So if you're talking to someone and you realize that you completely disagree with that person about, I don't know, the movie Titanic, but you continue to talk to them and you like learn how to talk to them about art, you've actually laid the groundwork for talking to them about other things. So if you have the, the trust that's built in being able to talk about culture, it's going to be easier to talk about religion, politics, whatever, because you've already started to learn how to be vulnerable with each other. And I think that that first level of vulnerability that comes through talking about art is an important training ground for the vulnerability that we need to be honest with each other about everything else. Excellent. 
Mark Blankenship, it was a pleasure talking with you today on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I hope we get a chance to do it again. I am pre-accepting. This was so much fun, and your questions are so wonderful and stimulating. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the the great responses, and uh, enjoy the rest of of the winter, and uh, good luck with the flash paper. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and again, thank you so much for having me.
shut-in receives a letter from his mother. I received a letter from my mother today, postmarked Skagway, Alaska. Dearest Glenn, I hope you are well. I am not mother. When was I ever well? Life is an adventure, and I want you to take part in it. Noted. I have so many adventures to tell, Glenn, but I'm pressed for time. So for now, I'll just relate one of them to you. As you know, Ronald is a shaman. Yes, mother, I know. Your new boyfriend, Ronald, the Barry White fan, confers with the flowers and consults with the rain on the plateaus of the great Northwest. Oh, no. I'm beginning to sound like my bitter cousin, Mary. He's a very spiritual man, Glenn. I think you'd like him. Do you, mother? Do you? Well, last weekend, after a tasty brunch, Ronald and I went on a spiritual quest on a mountain outside of Skagway. Before his retirement, he used to take sightseers on tours and spiritual journeys, so I knew I was in good hands. Exclamation mark. My mother was never one for exclamation marks or spiritual journeys, for that matter. Unless you count walking a few blocks to our church every Sunday and complaining about the sermons. What would Father O'Malley make of our newfound spirituality, I wonder? We made our way up the mountain, and Ronald pointed out the edible mushrooms and berries along the way. He was looking for a particular mushroom. Oh, I bet he was, Mother. Ah, Ronald cried. There it is, and he bent down and plucked a mushroom and broke it in half. Do you trust me, Evelyn? he asked. And I answered, yes, yes, Ronald, I do. And I ate the mushroom. Now I can't tell you how many times this woman has sent back food in a restaurant. Undercooked steak, chicken, fish, omelets. Waiters would blanch when they saw her at their stations. And here she was gobbling down a potentially deadly snack from the hands of her shaman lover. Why, that mushroom might have been the equivalent of what used to be called a Mickey. Back in the days when Mother, perfumed and quaffed, headed out on a date with my future father, who abandoned us so long ago. I felt a little queasy at first, Glenn. But then, oh, Glenn, the feelings the visions. I can't describe them all. I can't do them justice. You'll laugh, Glenn. I'm not laughing, Mother. But at one point, I became an eagle. I swooped over the mountain, feeling the wind in my wings, and as I looked down at the beautiful green land, I saw Ronald running below. He had become a wolf. That I can see. 
Yes, as Ronald explained to me later at dinner, when we had come down from the mountain, the eagle was my spirit animal, and the wolf was his. I wonder what your spirit animal is, Glenn. A chipmunk? Those nervous Nellies of the city park, the suburbs and the forest? I don't know how long my eagle vision lasted, or how long Ronald scampered gaily in his wolf aspect. When I came out of it, we were near a stream, and Ronald was holding my hand. We stripped off our clothes and bathed in the cool water. Oh, Glenn, I... Well, that was enough for me, for now. I put down the letter, poured myself a generous helping of blueberry Smirnoff, went out under the back porch, and looked over at the windows of my bitter cousin Mary's house. From the flickering light, I guessed she was watching television. Probably a Law and Order marathon. She loves Law and Order, especially the first one, and never fully recovered from Jerry Orbach's passing. I finished my drink and returned to the letter. I noticed a little brown something in the envelope. A mushroom. A gift from my mother and her shaman, Ronald. Hmm. Not a chipmunk. A finch, perhaps. Or a wild hare.
Shadows. Without coffee, the shadow of my hand is faster than the thoughts that move this pen across the paper, and thus I more clearly comprehend all my life lived might transcend, and it feels good. I am living enamored by show tunes and shadows. Got to Kansas City on a Friday By Saturday I learned a thing or two Cause up to then I didn't have an idea Of what the modern world was coming to I counted 20 gas buggies going by their cells Almost every time I took a walk And then I put my ear to a bell telephone And a strange woman started in to talk what next? Yeah, what? what next? Everything's up to date in Kansas City. They've gone about as far as they can go. They went and built a skyscraper seven stories high, about as high as a building ought to grow. Everything's like a dream in Kansas City. It's better than a magic lantern show. You can turn the radiator on whenever you want some heat With every kind of comfort, every house is all complete You can walk the privies in the rain and never wet your feet They've gone about as far as they can go Yes, sir! They've gone about as far as they can go Everything's up to date in Kansas City They've gone about as far as they can go they got a big theater they call a burly queue. For 50 cents you can see a dandy show. One of the gals is fat and pink and pretty. As round above as she was round below. I could swear that she was padded from her shoulder to her heel. And then she started dancing and her dancing made me feel that every single thing she had was absolutely real. She went about as far as she could go. Yes, sir. She went about as far as she could go. And there you have it, episode 407 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Mark Blankenship, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Regina Spector, Paul Thorne, Madonna Ciccone, S.G. Goodman, J. Blackton, and Jean Nelson, Brentford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with 
this time. Take care.